Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Grant, O merciful God, that I may ardently desire, prudently examine, truthfully acknowledge, and perfectly accomplish what is pleasing to Thee, for the praise and glory of Thy name. Amen. Lord, we offer You this time that we have together this evening. We are here to contemplate the reality of the Incarnation and our salvation through it. Please enlighten our minds and set our hearts on fire with your divine love. And may all that we do be for your glory and our good. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, here we are at the end of this first volume, even though we've already in a way, you know, like cheated and went to the end, you know, of the book, read uh, volume three already in the middle of volume one. But but it, it definitely feels like we've accomplished something um, in reading this main volume. And, you know, Benedict broke it up into sections because, you know, he always, I think, had, had a sense of urgency. He tried to retire, you know, it was like at least three times while he was prefect of the, the CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Um, and he just had this sense that, you know, he wouldn't have a lot of time, that it was kind of running out of gas. And so he said, I'm just going to publish this first volume. But there is a, a coherency to this volume in itself. And I think it, it, it leads up very well to where we're going to pick up in volume two, because Everything in this first volume has been focused on the reality of the incarnation. That is the identity of Jesus as the word made flesh, as the son of the father, who is the icon of God, as Paul says about Jesus. That, that is the essence of what Pope Benedict thinks that we should know about who Jesus is. Um, that when we see his face, we see the face of the Father. And, and this is why Pope Benedict points to his uniqueness. You know, when, when he, he begins with that question of his identity, but then he even moves to his teaching. And what is his teaching? Unlike any other teacher, unlike any other leader, he's not teaching about something else. He's not leading to a farther goal. He presents himself as what should be learned. He presents himself as the goal. And, you know, if he's not the son of God, that's very conceited. <laughs> but actually, at the end of the day, it's not even about him. Right? Because he says, everything that I say, 
the Father has given me to say. And everything that I do has been commanded by the Father. And so it's not even about him. It's about something crucial that Benedict points out in our reading, and that is communion. Everything that Jesus said and did was about communion with the Father. And when we learn him, and when we experience him, we are being led to the Father in his gift of the Holy Spirit, right? Everything is always Trinitarian. Um, and if, if we're not deeply rooted in the Trinity, right, then we are missing the mark in our Christian faith because that is what it is all about. That is reality itself. And I want to make sure that we unpack that because there's some really powerful pages that come out on communion. But the reason why I said that volume one ends in a place that is perfectly kind of leading us towards volume two is not just chronological. You know, if you would imagine how God would reveal himself to the world, what, what would it be? I mean, there's actually two great theophanies on Mount Sinai. And the first one is actually, you know, the entire mountain shaking and fire is pouring up, you know, from the mountain and there's smoke all around. And the Israelites are so afraid. They basically say, God, I, I can't see your face. Like, don't show your face to us. We're going to die. You know, it's like they're afraid. And we might think, yeah, 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 that's right. If, if, if God were to reveal himself, it would be like that, right? Like he did the first time at Mount Sinai. But then the prophet Elijah comes back to Horeb, right? Another name for Mount Sinai. And all those things happen again, right? The mountain, the mountain shakes and there's storms and all these things. And God is not, not in them, any of these manifestations. But he's in the still, small voice, this, this gentle breeze. And God speaks in such a way that most people would even miss it, right? And, and so you have the first option of something that's so overwhelming and undeniable. You think, yeah, 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 that would make sense. Or, or maybe God would be so subtle that no one would even notice. And you, you even think, you know, I was in my mind came up the contrast of Buddha, right? You know, that Buddha reaches enlightenment by withdrawing from everything. And, and might this be how God would appear like so far removed from us that we just couldn't even relate? You know, Buddha is trying to escape from everything that is human, escape from all suffering. You might think, well, God is beyond, right? So, so maybe that would be an appropriate manifestation of God. And, and what would the equivalent be, right? If we're thinking about the life of Jesus, what would that first Mount Sinai be um, in the life of Jesus? It would be that he is coming as a triumphant ruler, as many Jews expected, right? You know, that he is going to kick some Roman butt <laughs> and he's going to let everyone know that the Messiah has arrived and the kingdom of God has been established, right? Everything's going to shake. There's going to be fire. There's going to be smoke. All of God's enemies will fall on their face and say, we can't survive before him. We say, yeah, that could make sense. That could make sense. But, but on the other hand, like the Elijah experience, what if God was, was just so far beyond our human experience that you might have to go, you might have to travel like Elijah did through the desert, and you might have to go into a cave and fast, you know, for 40 days, even just to catch a glimpse of him. He's so far beyond that, you know, we couldn't even relate to him. But Jesus doesn't do either of those kinds of extremes, if you will, you know, the super intense or the super subtle he comes and he lives an ordinary human life for 30 years. 
that we discussed this briefly right, in the infancy narratives, right? It doesn't do anything that is extraordinary and to one extreme or the other, right? Just an absolute normal life. And that's why when people, even his own family members and his neighbors in Nazareth, they're like, what? What are you saying? What are you doing? Because we know that you are the builder's son. And you lived right here. We know who your mother is and your brothers, you know, your, your, your cousins. They're all right here in town and you were just like them. And why are you standing up in the synagogue now and saying these things? Doesn't make any sense, right? Because you were so ordinary. But in the midst of that ordinariness, there is something extraordinary. And it's it's not even the, the teaching. It's not the miracles. Pope Benedict is very clear that there is one act in particular that manifests the glory of God. It's not even the transfiguration, right? The transfiguration is to help the disciples to recognize the real theophany, the real manifestation when it does happen. And that is the cross. All of the teaching and the healing and the discipling that happened, even the, the, the 30 years of ordinary life, but everything that Jesus did, everything that he was, was finally made clear on the cross. Thomas Aquinas, whose um, new feast day um, was yesterday, the feast of the transference of his relics, which is now his main feast in the Roman calendar. He was known as, as a child to ask a question, of course, that stumped everyone. Who is God? Who is God? You can imagine the monks at Monte Cassino where he was studying as a kid and saying, Thomas, just go outside and play ball now. You know, <laughs> can't you just be like the other kids, Thomas? No, you want to know who is God. And that's what Jesus came to teach us, right? That That is the, the one question that matters, right? And we talked about that last time, that one thing that is necessary. That is what Jesus wants to offer us, that one thing that is necessary. We cannot know God in this life, like in a way that we could comprehend him, that we could just see into who he is. Uh, it would, it, in a way, it would be like Mount Sinai. It wouldn't be the shaking of the mountain and the thunder and the fire and all these things. But if we actually just saw God, we would die. It would be worse than, than the Mount Sinai experience. We can't know who God is. And I think that in my own experience, this might sound weird, but the most terrifying thing that ever has happened to me in my life, and it happens every so often, but is the contemplation of eternity. I can't, you can't comprehend it. It's impossible. But to me, it's actually, it is terrifying, right? To think that I, I'm not even, not even my own death, right? But it's just like, what actually is eternity? No beginning, no end. God simply just is, right? He's the great I am that Benedict talks about in our reading today. What does that mean? We can't know what that means. And yet the one who simply is, the one who is perfect in himself, not even capable of change because he is simply the fullness. He's lacking nothing. He can't grow. He can't become more. There's nothing he doesn't know. The absolute fullness. What does it mean to be perfect and eternal? Well, Jesus came to teach us that. And what he showed us was that it means to be perfectly and utterly 
poured out, not to be focused on oneself, not to be focused on all these things that pass away, the things that people hoped for at the time of the incarnation, political power, restoration, peace, prosperity, even the way that we conceive of eternal life is a lot of us just conceive of that as a continuation of our current life. That's not what eternity's like. It's complete and utter gift with nothing held back, nothing more that could be given. It's complete and utter perfection of love, life of fruitfulness, gift, life itself. And there was nothing more that Jesus could have done to teach us who the Father is than to pour out every single drop of his blood. You say, now do you know who the Father is? You have been with me this whole time, and yet you still do not know. I will show you. This is my teaching. This is my ministry, my healing. This is what forms my church. This is the essence of life, of love, of eternal perfection. But on his way for this great act, Benedict says that Jesus makes an invitation to his disciples. Who do you say that I am? And he says, this is not a pop quiz. <laughs> you know, this is not like a Sunday school, uh, you know, catechism test to see if you can receive your sacraments. Okay. Now, some people say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Disciples, will you get the question right? Benedict says, no. It's an invitation to walk in the way of the Son. Do you know who I am? Are you willing to walk where I walk? Will you come with me to Calvary? Will you give yourself with me to the Father? Because if that's what eternity is, well, then that's what you need to do to enter it. You need to walk the way of the son as a son. The son did not come so that we could just sit at his feet and say, you're amazing. <laughs> I can't believe that God revealed himself in this way. No, rather the incarnation itself is an invitation. Who do you say that I am? Are you willing to know the father? Because if you are, then you can be a son. You can enter into the gift. Come, follow me. I was really happy that we, we got to enter into John's gospel and our reading. I just love John's gospel. <laughs> and it's interesting that Benedict was actually focused mostly on the synoptic gospels. And a lot of people say, well, you know, the Synoptic Gospels focus on the humanity of Jesus and John focuses on the divinity. And it's not really true, but John does focus more explicitly on the divinity of Jesus. Uh, but we, we could say that the Synoptic Gospels are certainly revealing the divinity of Jesus in very many ways. And John, you know, I think it's, it is pretty clear that, that he's the last of the four gospels. And, you know, th there's a funny joke that I, I love. I probably tell it too much, but uh, about John's gospel is that 
you know, what does it say on Easter Sunday that John and Peter, though the beloved disciple who, who we named John, you know, and Peter are running to the tomb. And it says that the beloved disciple stopped at the empty tomb, refused to go in, and he allowed Peter to go in first, right? Because he's, he's Peter. He's the head of the disciples. And the joke is, hey, Peter, I beat you to the tomb. Yeah, I, John, who cares? You're younger. Uh, you know, no, nobody's even going to know about it, you know? And John's response is, everyone will know. <laughs> it, it, the reason why, I mean, I think it's so funny is that it, it does even kind of reveal the nature of John's gospel, right? The synoptics go first, right? And and John is kind of stepping back and saying, these are the things that you need to know after that introduction. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you see the ministry of Jesus in Galilee with the synoptic gospels. And you see you know, an emphasis on, you know, his sermons by the lake, like the Sermon on the Mount that we looked at, the Beatitudes, the Our Father, you know, so many of these things that that are absolutely essential. You can imagine John, you know, kind of stepping back and looking at things and saying, but what about the discourses in Jerusalem? The Synoptic Gospels you know, reflect the fact that Jesus calls himself Son of Man. But what about the great I Am? The Synoptic Gospels give us the Last Supper, the, the, the words of institution, this is my body. But what about that synagogue discourse? You know, up in Capernaum, when, when he spoke at the, in the synagogue there, well, what about that? And so he presupposes that we've already encountered Jesus, and he is going to take us deeper and he doesn't have to repeat the things that were already laid out by the synoptics. I mean, he certainly does give us some things, but but you know, even something like the call of the disciple, right? We see the call of the disciples happening up in Galilee along the lake in the synoptic gospels. John reveals, no, 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 but it started sooner. Well, probably because he was there, right? We see the disciples going from John the Baptist, you know, directly over to Jesus. You know, Master, where are you staying? Right, we get that right away at the beginning of John's gospel. Where are you remaining? Where are you staying? Where are you remaining? That deep question. And the whole gospel is this invitation to abide um, in Jesus. Uh, and so I just love to reflect and, and to meditate upon it. It, it is so rich. Um, and Benedict talks about these images. And, you know, one of the things that I was reflecting on as I was thinking about the images that Benedict chooses out of the gospel, you know, water, wine, bread. Okay, so what do, what do we see in those first three images? Well, they're all things that we consume, right? You know, we, we have to drink water and eat bread. And, and to a certain extent, I think Benedict is saying we also have to drink wine, right? You know, that there, there is something, and I don't mean that we all need to drink alcohol, but I mean, but it represents something more than just water. And then I was thinking shepherd. I was like, well, wait a second. I mean, we go from water, wine, bread to shepherd. That doesn't seem to flow, right? The others seem to flow upon one another pretty easily. And, and then it clicked to me that it, it does. Well, what, what, is, what is the shepherd doing? Well, he raises sheep. Why? 
well, there is their wool, right, to put on as, as clothing, but they are consumed. And even when we think about Jewish history, right, they are consumed for the Passover in particular, the lamb. It must be consumed to partake of the spiritual impact of the Passover. And so when you put all this together, right, I mean, Jesus says that he is the living water, right, and that he will give us even the spirit, right, to well up within us. We need to come to him to drink, that he is the vine, he himself, right, and he's going to give us to drink of his blood. He is the bread come down from heaven. But how is he the bread come down from heaven? Because he gives of his flesh for us to eat as the Passover lamb. And so he is shepherd by becoming sheep, right? Because what does he say? You know, John 10 is the chapter on the good shepherd. The good shepherd does what? Lays his life down for the sheep. That is, he becomes a sheep. Even though he's the shepherd, he's the one who protects. He's stronger and smarter <laughs> than the dumb sheep. But no, but he became a sheep. And what, what does that point us back to? This whole reality of who is God? That great question, which of course can never be answered fully, right? But, but Jesus came to answer that. He's, he is the one who can answer it, right? That's why Jesus is not just like Buddha or you know somebody who's, I will enlighten you, you know, through my own discovery and my own experience, you know? No, right? He is the one who comes from the Father and only he can reveal who the Father is. And he does that by becoming a sheep, by being slain. As Paul says in Philippians 2, right? Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not deem equality with God something to be grasped but rather he emptied himself and took the form of a slave, the sheep. <laughs> How does the shepherd serve the sheep? Well, he, he becomes one of them and not only becomes one of them, but dies for them. And Benedict just, just hits the nail on the head, right? You know, if we, if the book had ended before this section, well, I don't know if we ever really would have, have understood the father and, and his love, right? Because the incarnation, right, is the presence of God in the world, but it's not complete, Benedict says, until the gift, until the Paschal mystery comes out. Paschal means like this Passover mystery of the lamb who was slain. We cannot know the father without the gift of the son. And, you know, I've been doing religious education and Catholic education for a long time. Kind of cracks me up how how people always say, you know, I, I've heard this many times through the years. I I just can't stand that Abraham story. That it's so cruel that God would tell him to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah like that. And say, so, what kind of God is that? Now we know, this is the God who does not hold back the son. But the only son, it's interesting because God says it to Abraham, your only son, right? Because this is the son that is the gift, right? The only son of the father, the, the one from whom all the promises would come for Abraham, 
he must be sacrificed for the promise to take effect. If we look at at all the parables, like Benedict, you know, kind of went through their core, right, and, and what they teach us, he said, well, they they all point to the coming of the kingdom and the Son. But we could take that farther and connect it with his teaching today, and to say that all of the parables reflect the Father's gift of the Son, because as John says. John 3, 15, right? You know, we, we see that written all over the place. People put up these signs, you know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that all who believe in him may not perish but have eternal life. This is how we come to know the Father, to know what it means to be the perfect I am of eternal life. It's to surrender it all. Because ultimately, Benedict points us to the reality of what does it mean to be son? It means to receive everything that the father pours out and gives. And therefore, that's what it means to be the father, the one who, who gives, who gives of his own life for the other. And the son receives that and gives it back. And so Jesus can't just tell us, hey, do you know that the father loves you? I mean, we say, yeah, well, that, that, that's great. Thank you. you thank you. And, and then we just go about our business, you know. I will show you that the Father loves you. This is what it means to be king, right? Because Jesus ultimately is king. And, and even that title, shepherd, it points to the reality of being king. This is probably, I think, a good moment to look at this teaching. If we look around like page 281 I, ha I had some quotes that i gave you in the handout from this section yeah we can we can start at the bottom of 280 what does it mean to be shepherd he says well the shepherd knows his sheep and his sheep know him so at the, the very last line of page 280 first of all knowing and belonging are interrelated shepherd knows the sheep because they belong to him and they know him precisely because they are his. Um, if we drop down just a few lines, the true shepherd does not possess the sheep as if they were a thing to be used and consumed. Does he have a right to do that? Yeah. In this case, the shepherd made the sheep. They are his, but he doesn't treat them like a thing. This kind of tells us that, you know, the, the nature of, of the father's love. Rather, they belong to him in the context of their knowing each other in this knowing as an inner acceptance. It signifies an inner belonging that goes much deeper than the possession of things. Let us illustrate this with an example from our own lives. No human being belongs to another in the way that a thing does. Children are not their parents' property. Spouses are not each other's property. Yet they do belong to each other in a much deeper way than, for an example, a piece of wood or a plot of land or whatever else we call property. If we drop down to the bottom of that same paragraph, right, the middle of 281, they belong to each other, not as property, but in mutual responsibility. They belong to each other precisely by accepting one another's freedom and by supporting one another in love and knowledge. And in this communion, they are simultaneously free and one for all eternity. 
free and one for all eternity. In the same way, the sheep who are, after all, people created by God, images of God, do not belong to the shepherd as if they were things. That is what the robber does, right? The robbery says the ideologues and dictators and everything like that. Let's turn the page here to 282. Where he's ultimately going with this is that the kind of knowledge and belonging that Jesus wants to initiate with the sheep is an extension of the knowledge and belonging that he has with the Father. And so if we look at the bottom of the middle paragraph in 282, we'll pick up there. This interpenetration of two levels of knowing is crucial for understanding the essence of the knowing of which John's gospel speaks. Applying all of the above to the world in which we live, we can say this. It is only in God and in light of God that we rightly know man. Any self-knowledge that restricts man to the empirical and the tangible fails to engage with man's true depth. Man knows himself only when he learns to understand himself in light of God, and he knows others only when he sees the mystery of God in them. For the shepherd in Jesus' service, this means that he has no right to bind men to himself to his own little eye. The mutual knowing that binds him to the sheep entrusted to his care must have a different goal and must enable them to lead one another into God, toward God, and must enable them to encounter each other in the communion formed around knowing and loving God. This is what it means to have Christian community. The shepherd in Jesus' service must always lead beyond himself in order to enable others to find their full freedom. And therefore, he must always go beyond himself into the unity with Jesus and with the Trinitarian God. Why? Jesus' own eye is always opened into being with the Father. He is never alone, but is forever receiving himself from and giving himself back to the Father. That's what it means to be son. And when we say eternally begotten the Father, that means there's actually no beginning and no end of Jesus' being begotten of the Father, right? He's eternally begotten. No beginning, no end. He's being begotten now and always will be in the now of eternity. My teaching is not mine. His eye is opened up into the Trinity. Those who come to know him see the Father. They enter into this communion of his with the Father and to see his communion with the Father. That's what the shepherd is able to do. It is precisely this transcendent dialogue which encounter with Jesus involves that once more reveals to us the true shepherd who does not take possession of us, but leads us to the freedom of our being by leading us into communion with God and by giving his own life. You see, that's that last point, right? By giving his own life. This is what opens up communion. And, and think back to our, our last discussion. We said, uh, following Benedict, when we say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, it's this, forgive us our trespasses, right? Our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And Benedict said, that forgiveness is not cheap. What does it cost to be able to experience the love of the father as a prodigal son, as one who has wasted all the gifts of the father? What does it cost to be brought back into the bosom of the Father, to be embraced by the Father? 
it costs everything. And the one who is the fullness of life, the one who is the great I am, who has this perfection of life and being in himself, pours it out. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine, you are the branches. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. He says, just as I am in the Father, so I will be in you. You and me, I in you. Right? Just as I am in the Father and he is in me. That is eternal life. That is eternity. Eternal giving, eternal receiving. Pouring out, holding nothing back, receiving everything. If we look at Benedict's reflection on this, we can turn to page 348 and 349 as he's reflecting on Jesus as the great I am. We come back to this theme. He says on 348, in him, the mystery of the one God is personally present. I and the Father are one, right? He goes on to say, that's right in the middle of the page. Zimmerman has rightly emphasized that when Jesus says, I am, he is not placing himself alongside the I of the Father, but is pointing to the Father. How does he do that? Yet precisely by doing so, he is also speaking of himself. At issue here is the inseparability of Father and Son. Because he is the Son, he has every right to utter with his own lips the Father's self-designation. He who sees me sees the Father, or, or as he says, right in that same area of John's gospel, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. And conversely, because this is truly so, Jesus is entitled to speak the words of the Father's self-revelation in his own name as Son. But to, to really bring this whole trajectory to a completion, we can then look on the next page. After the Jews asked the question, who are you, right? And of course, Jesus repeats that question to us. Who do you say that I am? Which is also our question. Who are you? Right? Pope Benedict is trying to answer that question in this whole book. That's what this book is, right? Jesus' first response is to point towards the one who sent him and from whom he now speaks to the, speaks to the world. He repeats once again the formula of revelation, the I am he, but now he expands it with a reference to future history. When you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. The words have to be put into action. And he even says this, right? That there needs to be an identification of, of logos in action. That's what we see in the Paschal mystery. On the cross, his sonship, his oneness with the father becomes visible. The cross is the true height. It is the height of love to the end. On the cross, Jesus is exalted to the very height of the God who is love. It is there that he can be known, that the I am he can be recognized. The burning bush, right, where, where God revealed himself as I am to Moses, the burning bush is the cross. The highest claim of revelation, the I am he, and the cross of Jesus are inseparably one. What we find here is not metaphysical speculation, but the self-revelation of God's reality in the midst of history for us. And as he says on that page, that last page we read, this is our question. This is the question he's trying to answer. Who is Jesus? 
Jesus is the one who makes the Father known by embodying the Father's love on the cross, by pouring that love out for us so that we can return it through him in the Holy Spirit, because only then will we know. We will know the Father when we respond with the love of the Son, enlivened by his own Holy Spirit. It's not metaphysical, like he said. This is not a class to sort of talk about, you know, ideas about who Jesus is. It is an invitation to enter into the reality of who Jesus is, to enter into the communion of the giving of the receiving of Father and Son. That is how eternity breaks into time. That is how God's love becomes real and accessible and even our own. The end. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, what can I say after that, right? Because th that is literally what life is all about, right? And we would not know that, right? I mean, if, if the son had not come to reveal the father to us, we simply would be left out in the darkness. We wouldn't know who we are. We wouldn't know what life was about. We would not know God. But the kind of knowledge that Jesus wants us to have is like the knowledge of father and son. It's like the knowledge of husband and wife, that belonging. That's the kind of knowledge that Jesus wants us to have of the father. Okay, so with that, I wanna turn now to our discussion questions. And you know, I think I, I, I wanna really sit on this, right? So if we look at the overarching questions on page one of the study guide, I mean, really we could we could look at all of these together, right? Who do people say that I am? He teaches us who he is on the cross. If Jesus manifests his divine glory through the cross, what is this teaching us about suffering in our own lives? And the third question, if Jesus presents himself as God, the I am, what does it teach us about God that he would come in humility as a servant of humanity? So if we were to kind of think of these things together, what does it teach us about ourselves if this is how God has acted in relation to us. I think that's where we could really kind of sit with this. You know, how does it really help me to know who I am when we see the way that Jesus reveals the Father in in this self-emptying love for us? I don't know if if anybody has any kind of thoughts particularly on that point because what we see now, right, is that this is the way that Jesus fulfills his mission in revealing the Father for us. So I'm all over the place, Dr. Stark. Knowing and belonging also has to do with obedience and uniting our will with God, right? And then that's one point. And the other point is nothing happens without God allowing it, right? So I need not to look for suffering just for the sake of suffering, but when it comes in the different many ways that it comes, this is this is me thinking, uh, I have to embrace it, like embracing the cross, like hugging the cross. And in that way, I get to know God even more. I, I don't know if that has happened to others, but that's what has happened to me in my life. And... It's like giving consolation to the Lord and participating in his suffering and becoming him 
And my main problem is that I need to learn to, to stop complaining. Now I'm getting better. I, I start to recognize, okay, God allowed this. And I just need to, his plan is perfect. So I need to follow it. And it also reminds me of the saints, but especially Mary, when they had to go to Egypt. And she said, I guess she said that, that, you know, God, and we studied this in the confraternity of the Holy Rosary. So God, who can do anything, allow us to go through this. So he will take care of us. So, and it also unites with the words of St. Paul that he never gives us more than we can handle. So am I on the right track? Because I have all these ideas yeah. of being not rebellious because that was my problem my whole life. I wanted to, because of my history, you know, and not trusting men figure because of my upbringing. So being willing to obey him and follow right. him. I mean, there's so much there, but I think what I would say is that God enables us to not only endure, but to sanctify the trials, you know, that we must face, not by removing them. Jesus took them all on upon himself, but that doesn't mean that he removed them from us. So what does he say? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Well, what is a yoke, right? There's the two are carrying it together. And so when he says that God, Paul says that God will not give you any suffering that you cannot endure. I think what that means is that there will be things that you on your own cannot handle. That's clear. But that when we are yoked together with Christ, that he is providing us the means of being saved even through that, right? There's a, there's a line in Acts of the Apostles that says, it is only through many trials that we can enter the kingdom of God. Um, and so these things are actually necessary for us because the way to the Father is through a gift, right? And the perfect gift has been made for us in the Son but when we face these difficulties in this yoking together with the son, right, we are able to give these things to the father in love as well. And this is our means of becoming Christ in the world, not only sanctifying ourselves, but sanctifying others in this gift as well. So anyway, there's so, so much that could be said there, but Elisa, I see that your hand is up. I think when it comes to like answering the question, like if somebody asked me like who Jesus was, like, who do you say I am? Like after reading this book, I mean, I, I guess maybe my favorite quote of Benedict's in, I think in this entire volume, it's at the, it starts at the bottom of page 271. And he says, Benedict writes, yes, it really did happen. Jesus is no myth. He is a man of flesh and blood. And he stands as a fully real part of history. We can go to the very places where he himself went. We can hear his words through his witnesses. He died and he is risen. It is as if the mysterious passion contained in bread had waited for him, had stretched out its arms toward him. It is as if the myths had waited for him because in him, what they longed for came to pass. 
And when I read this, it, it, it really kind of hearkened me back to Chesterton's Everlasting Man and talking about man and mythology and really all of the yearnings of our heart, mankind from the beginning, all the myths and all the religious, you know, pagan rituals and stuff, it all is a yearning to Christ. Like Christ is actually the ultimate end. He's the one that all of mankind yearns for because he is our ultimate end. And I just love how how he wrote this, you know, like all of time and history and mankind is as if we're all stretching out our arms toward him, just waiting for him to embrace him. And if 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 people could just like grasp that, you know, like if the person who doesn't know Jesus could just like grasp it. And I really like the part of the shepherd because it really reminded me of the priesthood. Like, how does, how do we know that the shepherd is really the shepherd? Well, he comes into the door. Well, you know, when I came into the Catholic church fully, I realized that that's the priesthood. Like, those are the ones that Jesus actually ordained. Like, how do we know who our true shepherds are? Well, as Catholics, we can have confidence in the priesthood because it's how Jesus ordains his shepherds. So there's a comfort there um, that can only be found in the Catholic church. Yeah, and John's gospel is is the the gospel of signs, and a lot of people have kind of drawn out the sacramentality of it. But I think that's what we see even with the priesthood, is that it's an extension, you know, of Jesus's own priesthood to us. And I think that can be can be hard to understand because we get caught up right in the individual, but it really is a great gift. And like you said, even this kind of of surety that the sacraments in general, you know, I think give us confidence in the gift of Jesus that comes to us in these really human ways. And that, and that's what really struck me in the, in the quote that, that you're reading. When you think of how much God loves us, that he's coming to us in these very tangible and accessible ways to reassure us, you know, and, and, you know, I, I mentioned even that sometimes having this, this, feeling of terror, thinking about eternity. And you know, the, the one thing that always, to me, just kind of snaps me out of it is thinking that Jesus himself became man. And so our humanity has a place in God forever, right? Through Jesus. Um, so anyway, we but we see that same idea, I think, coming out even in, in the priesthood. Uh, James, yes. Uh, yes, doctor. Um, so... Jesus wasn't the first one to ever be crucified. He wasn't the first one innocent person ever to die unjustly at the hands of wicked men. He was, however, the first one to be raised from the dead. And, and it's, it seems to me, I, and, and I'm kind of new at this, but, but it seems to me that the cross is not something to embrace. It seems that the cross is something that embraces. And once we get through the cross, we come to know who Jesus is. I am the resurrection and the light. And we fall into what uh, Peter's conundrum was on the side of the cross before the cross 
in Caesar Philippi, who do men say that I am? You're the Christ. Where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. But on the other side of the cross, he says, Peter, do you love me? And all Peter can say is, you are my love. You know that I love you. That's the, that's the story of, of Christianity, it seems to me. It's, it's after the cross. It's not the cross. It's not before the cross. And that is our, our hope. The, the, I am the resurrection. And I think when you know that, then when you take the Eucharist, God is there. We can lay our mind and our reason on the patent with his body. We can lay our heart and our faith in the chalice of his blood. And we can lift up our souls and our consciences in his passion. And we can fall on our knees and receive our Lord and our God. And that's on the other side of the cross. Yeah, I, I would say, I mean, I think you're, you're on to something absolutely essential. Um, but I don't think we can separate out the, the cross and the resurrection at this point. I mean, Jesus says, if you will come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. The cross is not the end in terms of suffering and death, right? I mean, like that's, you're right. That's not the goal. That's not the final word by any means. But the cross is essential even for us daily in terms of the surrender and the gift, which at this point is something that participates in Christ's resurrected life. I mean, I, I would say it is the resurrection, I think, as you're pointing out, that even empowers our ability to take up the cross, right? And, and what that means for us is that every day that we are making a sacrifice, to, sacri the word sacrifice means to make holy, that, that each day becomes holy as we take up our cross daily to follow Christ, um, and that we are giving of ourselves with Jesus. And, and But there's hope in that. Why? Because Jesus taught us, if you abandon yourself completely to the Father, if you give everything and hold nothing back, you will find your life, right? It's, it's those who lose their lives that will find it. We'll be more alive than we were before because we have taken up our cross with Jesus. But, but you're, you are very right to, to, to point that it's not like the cross itself is the end without the resurrection, right? We need to see them together. That life between the, the father and the son, that, that, that constant relationship, right, of, of being begotten and offering it all back is, do you think that's the antidote to being terrified by, uh, by eternity? Like it, that Jesus came to show us, well, this is actually what it looks like, right? Don't, it's blowing your mind, but don't be afraid because the pagans had an idea of of living forever, right? But but it's always so bleak. Like I'm thinking of going down to the underworld and the Odyssey and and the the Iliad and yeah, it's 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 terrifying. But Thomas, I see your hand is up there. 
Yeah, I think the point is that you can't get to the resurrection without the cross. And what he's saying with the cross is what he says, you know, to the rich young ruler, you know, uh, sell everything and follow me. Yep, you uh, you're the kenosis he talks about in the in St. Paul talks about in Philippians, you're pouring yourself out. It's completely giving yourself to this and not being lukewarm, like in like in Revelation, it'll spit you out if you're lukewarm. And it doesn't have, you know, you don't have to um um you can't go go halfway in. Jesus is not calling us to be, you know, halfway in, halfway out, or he's calling us to go all in and and really follow him and and that's what he's that's what he's talking about with the cross it's not it's not a part way thing and it's not halfway it's not half stepping it's not half measures he really wants us to to give all we have when he says it over and over and over that's why that's one of the reasons i think think people get so afraid in the of what he's talking about like the young ruler he just uh he leaves you know he goes away he goes away unhappy yeah i, I think it makes sense because if the cross is the complete gift of the son to the father that is to what we are called then as well we are called to that complete and full gift of ourselves in all the little ways every day right that's why he said take up your cross every day uh, to follow me well peter why don't we get some additional questions comments here uh tammy wrote in just on your 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 first question uh you know what what are we seeing that as God, as Jesus presents himself as, as the I am, uh, is, does it have to do with mirroring the image and likeness of God, right? Like showing that full picture of who we were ultimately created to be. Um, and then Michael mentioning suffering, right? To offer it the same way uh, that Jesus did. There's so many angles, of course, but some questions for you then, doctor, on many of the other aspects of the text that we haven't gotten to tonight. Um Christine actually writes in, this is going back to a previous lecture, but this is, uh, this, you, you mentioned the parables again. She asks if you could, in the parable of the prodigal son, Pope Benedict says that the father not only does not dispute the older son's fidelity, but explicitly confirms his sonship. So Benedict says the Jews are not condemned. Is Benedict thus confirming an open road to the Jews' own salvation without living the sacramental life? Yeah, I mean, there's some nuance needed here. This is a topic that is very dear to his heart. And throughout, you know, his corpus, he does want to be clear that the, the first covenant is not revoked. But at the same time, you know, he insists that the, the first covenant still maintains its order towards Jesus. So, I mean, that was the, the, the purpose of the, of the old covenant was to lead to the Messiah, to the Son. And so he would never say that there is salvation apart from Jesus. But on the other hand, the old covenant is ordered towards Jesus, right? So it's not, it isn't something apart from Jesus. But we do know that, you know, many Jews would explicitly deny, right, the, the Messiahship of Jesus and the, and the eternal sonship of Jesus. So it's, he, once again, to be very clear, would never say that there is a separate path apart from the church. Even as God has not revoked the original covenant. So, so what does that mean for the Jews? Well, anyone who's saved is saved in the one Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And the church really from the beginning has always talked about certain ways in which um, people can enter into the covenant, not by other exterior means as if the old covenant were still, you know, like the normal means to salvation, but there's always has been recognized this possibility of a kind of hidden faith um, that would open up the reality of the sacraments to certain individuals. Um, and the church has always taught that God is the only one who knows that, right? So, for instance, there is a, a classic adage, you know, um, God has offered us the sacraments as a means to salvation, but that he himself is not bound to them in a way that would restrict him either, right? You know, and of course, there's examples even in, in the old covenant, right, of certain people who are called to faith outside of Israel. There's even examples like Cornelius before his baptism in the New, New Testament, et cetera. So it's, it is a difficult question. And, but I think we can, I mean, we can still answer the question and say, you know, even though the old covenant's not revoked, Benedict doesn't simply say, well, if you're, but if you're faithful to the old covenant, therefore you're saved, right? He doesn't say that. Since you mentioned the sacraments, we're going to jump back forward. We've been talking about a lot about suffering and this question just came in. That's great on that point. Um, this person asking where the sacrament of anointing of the sick comes in. Um, Cause it does sound sometimes as if one must not ask for healing, but participate in the suffering. So, uh, so wh what's the balance here? What's the church trying yeah. to do with this? The primary end of the sacrament of anointing is not physical healing. The, the primary end is a spiritual strengthening of the soul for eternal life. And it is true that physical healing can be an effect of the sacrament because we are body-soul unities. And so as there is a kind of healing of soul that can extend to the body as a sign of the healing of soul. And so we see that Jesus and the disciples both healed people. And, and, and in Mark's gospel, we even see that Jesus said to the disciples to anoint the sick. And that, of course, recurs again in the letter of James. So that's what I would say, that the anointing of the sick is primarily an application of God's grace for a spiritual healing and strengthening for eternal life, but that secondarily offers us this, this manifestation of God's healing power through physical healings that, that do occur often. I mean, it's not a majority of, of the, the times in which an anointing is administered, but every priest you know, has examples of it nonetheless. Uh, Susan writes asking, if God doesn't suffer except in the second person as man, what was it for God the Father to send his only son? Put another way, it seems love always involves sacrifice and suffering. But how is that so when God the Father loves? We use the term self-giving when speaking of the community of the persons of the Trinity, but is this is dis distinct from suffering, right? So what we would say is that the missions of the Son and the Spirit are an extension of their procession. So what does that mean? That the Son is begotten of the Father, and as he's sent in the world, that begottenness is extended into time. And so the Father gives his Son to us. We should be clear that 
the son could have been accepted as Messiah, right? <laughs> you know, and that everyone could have embraced the kingdom of God and that he could have restored humanity as the new Adam and, and other means. But of course, he knew that the incarnation would entail this complete and, and utter gift of himself as the Lamb of God. Um, so the son does not suffer in his divinity, which is one with the father and the Holy spirit. The son suffers in his humanity. Um, and it still is a kind of emptying because as the son becomes man becomes flesh, his humanity deserved every conceivable honor that he was the true king and head of humanity and the new Adam. Um, and yet we killed the son and his humanity, right? So this is that kind of outpouring that the father was willing to offer the, the, the incarnate life of his son for the salvation of the world, even though he deserved all glory and honor from us. Let me backing up just a little bit. Bradley wrote in asking if you could just explain that concept of when we say Christ emptied himself. You've you've used the word the word kenosis. Kenosis. Just break yeah. that down. Yeah, and and I think there there are a lot of misunderstandings that crop up in this because there are theologians who claim that this emptying of the Son becoming man means that. It's like he forgot like who he was in his divinity or something like that, which obviously is silly when you just read the Gospels. Does Jesus ever seem confused about who he is? No, Jesus is absolutely certain about who he is in his mission, right? And that enables him to fulfill that mission. So it has to do with the fact that the, the one who is the great I am, who is the absolute complete, you know, fullness of life and of every perfection has taken on this week stuff, you know, <laughs> that's the emptying that, you know, the fact that he became one of his creatures and we are infinitely removed from God. Right. And when you think, what's this, what's the distance between creation and God? It is an infinite distance, meaning that as creatures, we could never overcome that distance. We could never reach God on our own. None of us actually deserve anything from God. People act as if, well, of course, we're all going to go to heaven when we die because we haven't killed you know, a million people or whatever, but it's we deserve nothing from God. Everything we have from God is a gift. Our, our lives and any prospect of eternal life, of course, it's a gift. And it was an expensive gift, of course, um, through the life of the son. But becoming man is an emptying, that, that the son taking up um, this creatureliness, this bodiliness, the dust of the earth, right? That is an emptying. God speaking human language and eating food, you know, that is an emptying out of, of himself for us. Could you talk a little bit about that idea of uh, if things had gone the other way? And maybe we're getting a little far afield here, but I know that that's Romano Gordini in The Lord uh often comes back to that idea, right? Well, it it wasn't yeah. determined. It wasn't necessary. The Jews could have accepted him. I know that he was a big right. influence in Pope Benedict in writing this work, but since you mentioned it, could you explain a little bit behind that? Because it seems like it had to happen, especially the way that Jesus talks about his own death. Yeah. And and of course he knew, right? We, we kind of, we, we see it even in the parables, 
say the parable of the vineyard, right? Because that came up in our reading because Jesus is an image of the vine. Um, or the vine is an image of Jesus. Um, but all, all of these messengers come. And they say, you know, we're, we're messengers of the owner of the vineyard. And this is how he would like you to care for the vineyard. And they had a choice. They could accept the will of the owner or not. And they chose not to. Was there any necessity that they reject the will of the owner? No. You know, the, the only necessity here is just our, our fallenness that, that pulls us down like lead, you know, but, but that doesn't actually take away our freedom. Um, and so what happens then when the messengers are killed, the owner says, well, I will send my own son. He didn't say, well, I'm going to send my son on a suicide mission. He says, well, no, they, they will listen to him. And so he comes on behalf of the father to make the will of the father known, to bring about communion with the father. And Jesus himself says, if you were Abraham's sons, well, then you would listen to me. Well, what does that imply? That they could listen to him, but they don't. <laughs> so, of course, there's, there is a freedom here. Does God know that he will be rejected? Yes. And, and this is where my friend Thomas Aquinas will say, you know, that the whole understanding of creation and of the incarnation is centered around redemption because God knows and, and has a plan, but that doesn't mean that we did not freely reject the plan, both in the garden, freely rejected it, and we also freely rejected the entrance of the Son into history. And yet he saved us, not only despite those things, but he saved us through those things. Well, so I'm shifting gears back over into John's gospel then. Uh, James asks, if you have any idea why Logos, the term Logos only shows up in his prologue and nowhere else, uh, and why does it, why, why does that concept factor so much in New Testament scholarship? Yeah, and of course it does show up other places. I'm thinking of, of Romans 12, I believe it's verse one, where he says, offer your bodies, you know, as a pleasing sacrifice as a logical worship, you know, <laughs> and, and of course it's saying that we need to worship in accord with the logos. So why does he only um, explicitly refer to that there? Well, Genesis one is a creation account. You know, there's actually many creation accounts. There's two different creation accounts right at the beginning of Genesis, but there are many others as well. Um, some appear in the Psalms and there's one in the book of wisdom. There's also a creation story in John one. And so in the beginning was the word. And we really see here that it's another way of, of saying the son, right? And so, um, what do we see in Genesis one that God spoke and it was made. And I think that that helps us to understand why John uses the, the term logos here, word, speech, reason, idea, all, all of these things are actually possible translations of, of logos, not simply word, right? It's a very rich word. <laughs> um, so I would say that the entire gospel though bears that stamp because John's gospel 
often refers to the fact that Jesus is speaking on behalf of the Father. And so the entire thing manifests that reality. Of course, there's been much ink spilled about um, even other connections to other writers like Philo and how they use the, the term logos in their own writing, et cetera, et cetera, and how this can be seen as a connection to Greek philosophical thought. But I, I as I'm encouraging here, I would lean more into um, the way in which um, this is really a retelling of the story of Genesis 1. Awesome. Uh, Andrew up here, up on screen, go ahead. You mentioned about this uh, concept of knowing and belonging earlier on. And this knowing, uh, you, you briefly mentioned about uh, a, a relation to the knowing of uh, the relationship be uh, between spouses. Could you elaborate further on that, this, this knowing uh, of Adam and Eve and this, this nuptial embrace and how it's connected to the Christ, uh, I mean, this knowing and between ourselves and Christ. And is it because Christ is the practical uh, Messiah and we are the sprite? Yeah, I think there, there really is something here because, you know, people speak of that as a kind of euphemism in the Old Testament, Adam knew his wife. But, but in a way, there's something really genuine about it because it's only in that gift of self and, and the reception of the gift of the other that there is a, a deeper kind of knowledge. And I, and I think that is what is implied by Benedict here, that knowing about something is not the same as communion with that thing. And there's actually, I mean, one of my favorite lectures that, that he gave um, was called, um, it, it's a lecture on beauty called The Contemplation of Things. And um, you can look it up on, online. Um, and he says that there's two ways of knowing. He says that there's a knowing from the outside. And he says it's theoretical knowing. And then there's a knowing through experience kind of from the inside. And he says, of course, the second one is more profound. And, and he says that in the context even of kind of challenging a lot of contemporary education, because after Descartes, we make knowledge abstract, you know, is that we want these clear and distinct ideas of things so that we can manipulate and control them, right? Um, Bacon, knowledge is power, for instance. To, to making things into abstract ideas. So I, I think that Benedict is saying that Christ is an event <laughs> and that through our communion with Christ, this belonging that we have, that there is a kind of intimate knowing that's an encounter and that leads to belonging and that becomes fruitful and that it's it's marital in the deepest sense, and that's indicated even by the the first sign of John's gospel happening at the wedding of Cana. And what does Benedict say there? Many others have said it as well. It's because this is the arrival of the bridegroom. And so, what is the wedding feast? You know, this entering into the Father's house, and he says, just as I am in Him and He is in me so also I will be in you. And people get goofy when, when they want to emphasize a kind of sexual connection there. Um, but what is even the marital act ordered towards? A communion of persons, John Paul II says in his Theology of the Body. 
the end is not even it's not the physical act right it is the the fruit that comes from that which is both biological fruit which is of course for human beings is not simply biological but that there is a way in which the the self gift of the spouses enables them to enter more deeply into love and that is a sign um john paul ii says of the complete gift of a father and son within the holy trinity right and and we need to be careful here right because you know we don't we don't we don't want to over sexualize that it's not the sexual act per se which of course is animalistic right and so the animalistic element of the marital act that aspect of it is is not in god right who has no body but that the giving of self in a fruitful way is most perfectly in god who is communion of persons so this kind of knowledge that comes from a complete gift of oneself the knowing of the other and the reception of self is something that is ultimately in god and we could say the marital act is a one is one participation in that um but that we see that christ the bridegroom is coming to initiate this great marital feast which is even a a deeper and more complete gift and receiving of self that we are able to experience in god i love it i i also i loved the connection of the wedding feast at cana to the passion that he makes and then to to the new creation right like ultimately it's um, yeah the whole thing it, it it makes the whole gospel you know bookended by uh these the the, the wedding feast it's incredible We'll end with a related question here um, on on knowing and belonging from Bruce. He asks uh, about 1 Corinthians 8, uh, verse 3. Um, is this a parallel or relevant passage to that discussion, or the point about knowing and belonging? The, the quote is, but if one loves God, one is known by him. Is Paul adding another aspect here or just restating what John is saying? Yeah, I, I would say that it is another way of, of emphasizing that point for sure. Um, but I love the the way that, no pun intended, but you know, I love the way that Paul emphasizes that it's not knowing that brings about loving, right? But it's loving that brings about knowing. And, and so... I think there is something very mystical here that we are moved towards God. Um, and of course, we cannot love God unless he first loves us, right? You know, I have not, you know, you have not, you know, chosen me. I have chosen you, right? He says, and so there's a way in which God loves us and calls us into communion with him. We respond and this moving out of ourselves towards him. Now, that doesn't mean that, of course, that, you know, if we look at to the act of faith may come before the theological act of charity in order of time, right? But there is a way in which even that act of faith has to be moved by an act of the will. Um, God drawing us to him. Uh, no one can come to me unless the father draws him. Right? And, and I think this is, is what Paul is ultimately getting at, is that God is not an object for you simply to scrutinize. 
Um, this is not, as Benedict said in that last reading that I did before the discussion, right? This is not just a metaphysical question that could be settled philosophically. And Paul may even be pointing to that. He begins 1 Corinthians um, by talking about the cross, like being, you know, folly to the world. But he says, but we have the mind of Christ, right? This, this wisdom which exceeds, and what is the, what is the wisdom of the cross? It's love, it's gift, it's complete pouring out. So I, I would say that this idea of being drawn by the Father's love, leading us into communion, and only while being in that communion will we really know God, right? And I, this is in Christianity and the crisis of cultures. Benedict says something very profound there. He says, before you believe, there is no, you know, compelling, you know, overwhelming kind of uh, evidence to say that God exists. Now, he's not denying proofs for the existence of God, right? But, but I think what he's saying is that there has to be a leap of faith. That, that's what he really means by that, right? And on a rational level, you can know that God exists. But he says that you can't prove the articles of faith beforehand, right? That, that's his, his point. But he says that once you believe, you do have evidence for the articles of faith because you have experienced them and that you have come to know God. And I think that's very profound. I think it has something to do with Paul, what Paul is saying in, in that passage, right? Is that, yeah, okay, Paul himself says that the world points us to the creator, that the works speak of the creator. We see that in Romans 1 and 2, for instance. Um, but there is a deeper knowledge of God that is what we've been talking about, like really knowing him, and that follows um, from this encounter, from entering into communion with him. Yes, beautiful. Well, excellent. We'll wrap up there. Thank you, doctor. Uh, doctor, could you close us out in prayer this evening? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, please draw us to the Son, that through him we may have communion with you in your most Holy Spirit. Draw us into your eternal love, your presence. Help us to become a gift back to you and a gift to others. Please help us to prepare to enter into this holy season of Lent to prepare ourselves to celebrate the Paschal Mystery at Easter. Help us to not only know you, but to love you with our whole beings, that we may become your sons and daughters and your true presence in the world. And together we say, all glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.